People are going to lose their minds. This is a moment in history unlike anything humanity's gone through. It's a very different world for humans to come. Take a step back and see the broad picture, which is the way all these technologies are interlinked. Because this is all about exponentiality, and humans can't think in exponential terms. How consequential do you want to say machine intelligence is? It's almost certainly as consequential as writing. How long did writing take to disseminate through the human population? You know, hundreds, thousands of years. And we're dealing with it now on a scale of months. But in this kind of world, you're compounding 100% growth every year, and the numbers become astronomical. AI is going to spot patterns in the world that were just completely invisible to us. Even if you think that the AI and the robots are your demise, you might as well bloody invest in them and make some money out of it. If not, you're just gonna be angry man shaking your fists at the clouds. end of China as we know it. Welcome to this Real Vision deep dive interview series. Today with a focus on global macro with a particular focus on the developments in China. It's my great pleasure to introduce the independent economist and research associate at the China Center at Oxford University, George Magnus. George authored the book Red Flags, Why She's China is in Jeopardy in 2018. And he's also the former chief economist of the UBS Investment Bank. George, it's a sincere pleasure to be able to host you here at Real Vision. Thank you for joining us. Great to be back here, and uh, thanks, Andreas. George, we have a lot to cover today because of the developments in China. Um, I've personally struggled with getting Chinese developments right, so I really look forward to this discussion on the developments uh, in the Chinese real estate sector, the new business model that they're trying to develop, and also the ramifications for financial markets and financial stability. But the first question I'd like to address with you is the question I started uh, asking at the very top of the show. Is China now transforming into a new business model? So, George, is this the end of China as we know it? <laughs> That's a, <clears throat> a nice dramatic way to put it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to start off with, um, I, I don't think there's any question, Andreas, in my mind that you know China is in a transition, um, and if that means uh, by definition, that China has reached the point at which you can no longer extrapolate into the future um, the way it has performed and the features that accompanied it uh, during the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s, and so on. Then I would say, yeah, China is at the end of that period, and it faces you know, now a transition to something else. We don't really know what that is. And I think um, certainly on my um, I haven't been to China since uh, before zero COVID, to be honest, but um, certainly up until that point and my contacts there um, subsequently certainly continue to reveal that, you know, some economists in China, policymakers um, uh, that I kind of had loose contact with, you know, certainly acknowledge that China needs to change, but politically it's really difficult for Leninists to change the kind of model that they believe is necessary for their um, survival and for their raison d'etre, which is to rule unchallenged. So 
we're in a very, very interesting, the 2020s are very, very interesting. And that's what really prompted the book and the title about Gis Steiner being in jeopardy because the future, you know, could no longer look like the past. Mm-hmm. George, in your words, what sort of characterized the Chinese business model or the Chinese economic model up until recently? It, it's, it seems from the outside like it was very dependent on real estate and construction. Yes. Um, so let, let me just kind of go back uh, slightly um, in the sense that China's business model or its economic development model was very similar in many ways to that of Japan and South Korea and a lot of Asian uh, tiger economies, well, I say a lot, I mean the Asian tiger economies, um, based on high rates of savings, high rates of investment, um, very mercantilist in terms of its uh, characteristics. Um, But um, whereas Japan and Korea and um, Taiwan and Singapore, for example, made the transition from uh, being those kinds of economies to um, what they are today, and and that did involve both, you know, econ- I mean, widespread economic reform, but also political reform as well. Um, China is kind of unique in the sense that no country really has had as sustained a high level of investment as a share of its economy um, that compares in any material way. So. China's investment rate is still about 44 or 45% of GDP. Nobody got near that. India's today is about 10 percentage points or more below that. Um, So uh, the problem is that when, obviously, we now look at real estate as well, which is a very, very particular aspect of this kind of high investment rate. Um, And, um, you know, what was a housing welfare system 25, 35 years ago was transformed into a market as we know it, um, very, very high and sustained rates of investment. But of course, the government treated the property market as a sort of a one-way counter-cyclical um, tool, really. So whenever the economy was losing momentum, as it did, for example, during the financial crisis of 2008-9, then again in 2011, then again in 14-15, you know, the government was continuously... Um, pumping up the real estate market, but never deflating it when the economy was doing very well. So it was a one-way bet. And I think, um, you know, we learned ourselves in 2008 what one-way property bets look like when they uh, eventually give up the ghost. Yeah, we did indeed. And um, admittedly, I've tried to dip my toes into the long Chinese real estate bet a couple of times this year with zero luck. So I'd like to get your take, George, on the current status of the real estate uh, sector in in China. We've obviously seen the headlines with Evergrande, the country garden uh, in trouble over the past couple of years, some of the big developers in in China. So what's the status here and now? Is the real estate sector still struggling? Um, yeah, I think it is. I mean, uh, there's, it's, it's a little bit kind of horses for courses. I mean, just like, you know, not everywhere in the United States looked like Las Vegas or Florida in 2008. Um, not everywhere looks like uh, some of the kind of lower tier, so-called lower tier cities, like tier three, tier four cities. These are administrative levels um, of cities in China. The tier one cities that everybody knows, like Shanghai, Shenzhen, Beijing, you know, and so on. Um, 
things are not quite as bad in the in the tier one cities, but the, the lower down in the administrative pecking order you get, you know, the worse it is in terms of oversupply, uh, empty apartments. There are probably something like, I don't know, <clears throat> the last count, maybe something like 50 million empty homes in China, which is about 12% of the housing stock. Um, the levels of activity in terms of transaction volumes, sales, investment are... 20% or so down on what was a weekly year in 2022, down maybe 30 or 40% compared with pre-COVID. Um, I would say during the winter this year and into early 2024, things may not look quite so grim because things have fallen, you know, levels have fallen so far um, that you can have a little bit of a kind of a cyclical lift. And the government has been taking a lot of measures to try to stabilize the housing market, abandoning restrictions on developers, those infamous three red lines that were introduced in 2020, uh, making it easier for um, not only existing uh, new mortgages, mortgagees to get um, financial good deals for mortgages, but also existing mortgage holders, um, allowing <clears throat> migrant workers uh, the right to urban registration in some smaller tier cities in um, uh, some provinces, not nationwide, um, and um, yeah, smaller down payments and so on and so forth. So, you know, things may not look quite as grim, but structurally and systemically, the market, the real estate market in China you know, is going to have to shrink in the next 10, 15 years. Um, and, and it will do, you know, e either wildly or steadily or in some kind of shape or form. It's the only question, really, of how that's going to be managed. We already get uh, a lot of questions coming in, and um, I'd like to bring up a question from Jordan already now because it relates to the discussion we have right now on real estate, uh, George. He's asking uh, for your opinion on the demographic trends in China and how related they are to these changing winds in real estate in, in China. So what's your view on the demographic trends ahead and how they will sort of impact the Chinese business model? Yeah, and that's a great question, which ties in, um, as the question I'm sure knows, um, to the real estate market. Because one of the things which I think we're kind of all a bit like kind of anxious about, really, is that because of the low birth rate, and uh, <clears throat> you know, it might be as low as 1.1, 1.2 children per woman. Um, I don't think that's it's probably that's probably a bit lower than the official number, but um, certainly there are demographers that think it may may be as low as that. Um, but what that really means is that the, the population or the cohort of first-time buyers, so people aged between 25 and 34, 35, something like that, that this, this group of people in society is going to shrink probably by orders of magnitude, maybe about a quarter between now and 2040, 2045. So the rate of household formation is going to be uh, much lower than it has been certainly during the years when the property market was booming. Um, and we also see this not just in terms of low birth rate, but also low rates of marriage. So this year, there'll be fewer marriages than at any time since 1980. Um, and um, property is something that is very closely associated with marriage and dowries and so on. So um, the, the demographics for China in terms of the real estate market uh, are really, really not good. Um, so not only do you have the oversupply problem and the fact that the sector is far too big for the economy, 
uh, but you also have these adverse kind of demographic shifts as well. Um, but the but that's the big that's kind of a, a microcosm in a way of you know the big picture. The big picture is shrinking working age population uh, from now to the foreseeable future, uh, rising old age dependency. <clears throat> The fact that, you know, obviously, as in other countries, China's not unique in this regard, the, um, the financial capacity of individuals and of the state to accommodate and integrate age-related costs of pensions, healthcare, uh, residential care, and so on, is, uh, is not great. Um, so it's, you know, it's the old mantra about getting old before you get rich. In other words, you know, we find it difficult with our income per head of, like, Forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars um, in the OECD world. Um, China's obviously not there yet uh, by a long chalk. I mean, it's twelve, twelve and a half thousand dollars, much inferior a kind of social security welfare system. In fact, the government doesn't actually even believe in welfareism as as we do in the West. So, um, yeah, these are going to be big challenges for China going forward. George, where does this leave structural growth ahead in uh, in China? We've obviously grown accustomed to these centralized growth targets. And I think for this year, they targeted 5% initially, or was it 5.5? So where does it leave that target ahead? Uh, should we expect that target to, to get continuously lower over the next 5, 10 years here? Uh, well, just as a matter of uh, behavior, um, I mean, the government actually says it's not publishing uh, five-year targets anymore for GDP. Um, the 14th five-year plan, which came out for the year for the period 2021 to 2025, I mean, doesn't have um, kind of. A, it has an implicit target in the sense that they want to double GDP and per capita GDP over that period, um, but it doesn't actually have a formal target. But they have retained the and said that they would continually continue to set annual growth targets. So this year's, as you say quite correctly, I think it was, quote, about 5%. And um, yeah, it probably will be, quote, about 5% on official data. And the IMF has just actually revised up its expectation for this year, I think, to something like 5.3 or 5.4. But this is, um, you know, this this was basically a kind of a 5%-ish growth in China's economy on a really, really bad 2022. Um, so whether it could grow at that sort of rate in 2023, I think is a little bit kind of doubtful. And I think that if we look at, um, as you know, as economists call it trend growth or potential growth, which is basically a product of you know land, labor, capital, quantity and quality, productivity and so on. Um, I mean, the likelihood is that China's maximum sustainable growth rate now, I think, is about half of what it was in the 2010s. So it will be, I think, around 2 to 3%. Um, so it's halved between now and the 2010s. The 2010s was roughly half of what it was in the 2000s. So China's really, its growth rate has really just come down, back down to earth. And Xi Jinping's problem is not that he caused the problem of lower growth. I mean, it was going to happen anyway, and predates his ascent to power. But he hasn't really addressed the issues and the systemic problems associated with it. If we look at the path ahead for the Chinese business model, given this issue of demographic trends being 
um, if not outright abysmal, then at least trending in the wrong wrong direction, uh, paired with high debt levels and structurally lower growth. Um, What's the plan for China here? Because it, uh, I kind of get the feeling that in the Western media, there is this narrative that China is currently like a deer stuck in the headlights, right? So so where does it leave China? And how do you think that they will sort of develop the business model from here? Yeah, um, good question. And we thought we might get an inkling of an answer um, waiting for the Politburo to announce uh, what we thought was going to be the third plenum of the 20th Party Congress. So. The third plenum is not always, but typically the <clears throat> event, uh, the party event um, at which the government speaks about and discusses the long-term kind of economic strategy. Many people will remember that 10 years ago in 2013, there was huge excitement about the, um, the third plenum and about the 364 reform measures that were announced um, split between 60-odd sectors, and you know, it included things like elevating the role of the market from supporting economic development to being a pillar of economic development, which was the official um, language at the time. And most of what happened at the third plenum in 2013 basically got ditched pretty soon. And certainly by the time China went through its financial crisis in 2015-16, um, most of the third plenum reform measures were really uh, underwater and, and forgotten. And the government obviously has switched direction since then, or, or basically emphasized a change of direction towards more repression and control. So uh, we were awaiting announcement of the third plenum. It hasn't happened. It might happen in December. It might not. If not, it'll probably happen next year. But I'm not really very optimistic that the government is going to announce the kind of changes to the structure of China's economy that um, we would necessarily think are appropriate. And I say that not just uh, kind of with a Western economist hat on, which of course I wear by definition, but also there are many Chinese economists who actually are saying, you know, we have to do more about consumption. We have to do more about opening up. We have to reform our service producing industries. Uh, but these are not things that come naturally to Leninists, and it certainly doesn't fit very well with uh, the overall ambition and uh, goals that the party has, in which it believes that the party leads everything, quote unquote, um, which is everything from the economy and commerce to society and um, social intercourse and so on and so forth. So what can they do? Well, Xi Jinping obviously lays a lot of belief and stresses all the time something that he calls new productive forces, which are really the industries and the sectors that are at the cutting edge of science and technology. So electric vehicles, batteries, climate change mitigation, green economy, um, artificial intelligence, uh, quantum computing, semiconductors, for heaven's sake, is something which the Chinese are absolutely desperate to be able to do on their own without having to rely on you know, Korea, Japan, the United States, Netherlands, and so on. So, um, yeah, that's the goal. Um, and they want to have you know, global brands in these industries, and they want to be able to bring prosperity to the country and to citizens through developing these um, uh, sectors, for example. But like in most countries, they're, they're pretty small relative to the boring bits of the economy, like wholesaling, retailing, 
distribution, transportation, and many of the things that never reach, you know, beyond, you know, somewhere very, very low down on your online version of the New York Times or Financial Times or whatever. So really what's the key is you have to develop these new technologies and you have to have the kind of diffusion mechanisms in your society and in your institutions which allow these to reach the boring bits um, that never really, um, you know, that are essential to what we do and how we live. And, um, and that's the problem, I think, is A, the new productive forces side of the economy in China is too small to compensate for real estate and everything else. And um, there are genuine questions about the institutional mechanisms that allow the diffusion and transfer of technology um, to, uh, to other places. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Speaking of uh, Financial Times, I think uh, probably a month or two ago, they published a uh, a chart on the export trends of cars from various large uh, car manufacturing countries around the world. And all of a sudden, China is now placed as number one in uh, car exports globally, um, likely uh, basically driven by the move to electric vehicles globally. But what do you make of... Uh, that trend, China now suddenly being a large car exporter, uh, we also see the same trend uh, within solar panels and stuff like that. Is that a core component of the new strategy of the uh, CCP? It's, I think it certainly is. I mean, and, you know, there's no question that China has succeeded in this area, um, you know, perhaps beyond certainly the expectations of automobile car companies in the United States and Europe and, and elsewhere. Um, and uh, and started earlier and put more money into it, and um, they are now where they are. Um, so I think um, for the United States, it maybe isn't such a problem um, because of tariffs um, and restrictions on entry to the U.S. market as it is for the moment, at least for the moment, in the EU, um, where I would think that the big uh, automobile companies are having a bit of a panic, really, about how they're going to cope with uh, the competition from China. Um, and why I imagine that the lobbying you know, of the commission, for example, to um, for, for protection uh, is probably uh, going to heat up quite a lot. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, obviously there are technical issues and technological issues and national security issues, which probably aren't really within my competence. So I, I don't really know whether it makes a big difference uh, whether we, you know, open our markets up to Chinese EVs or not, um, but and certainly in batteries, you know, it may not be the end of the story. I mean, people are already starting to talk about um, solid-state batteries as the successor or the next generation of batteries after lithium, um, and Japanese car companies are allegedly supposed to be quite um, far advanced in this research. Um, so that that's kind of an evolving story of competition, really, between China and, and other countries. Uh, but I think for the time being, you know, we, um, we're, yeah, I mean, the automobile firms are going to have to deal with the with the problem of having a, an outsized and very very efficient competitor in terms of Chinese EVs. I think this is sort of the perfect bridge building to the next topic, namely trade patterns between uh, the Chinese mainland and the West. Um, the Donald Trump administration. Um, in this trade case led by Peter Navarro, um, 
inaugurated this trade war against China uh, during uh, Trump's reign. And uh, if we look at trade data right now, it's pretty clear that it had an impact. So what are your takes when watching trade patterns between China and the US and China and the West in general right now? Will we ever get to trade with China in the way that we did before the trade war uh, was started? Um, well, I, I think it's, um, I mean, forgive me and, and certainly correct me if I've misinterpreted your question, but if, the, if in your question there was somewhere embedded in there was the word decoupling uh, or de-risking, um, then uh, my view is yes. I think you know we are going to see over time a, a kind of a continuous recalibration of the way in which trade happens and with whom. So, for example, uh, and I'm not even anticipating or allowing at this stage for what might happen if. For example, Donald Trump were to, uh, you know, go back to the White House in 2024. He's already said that he's going to introduce a 10% tariff across the board on uh, imports into the United States, which certainly would have um, a significant effect, I think, in uh, changing trade patterns. But leaving that to one side for the time being, um, I mean, what's quite interesting is how the U.S.-China trade relationship has changed. I don't think it was ever going to be the case that tariffs were going to really change the drivers of trade surpluses and trade deficits, which is really about domestic savings and domestic investment. But the tariffs certainly did result in uh, extra costs for consumers, um, and they certainly have changed some aspects of the pattern of trade. But I think that the bigger effect, uh, if I may say so, has been the recalibration of supply chains which has started, partly as a result of um, the tariff war, but more specifically because of things that have happened under the Biden administration and more recently in China and Europe itself and other countries, which is really to become less dependent on one another. And um, in this sense, you know, we can see broad stability in sort of the levels of imports and exports from China to the United States, or even actually some kind of decline uh, at the margin. Um, but that's because a lot of exports and imports have been redirected in a way to countries like Mexico, or to Central and Eastern Europe, in Europe's case, uh, or to other Asian economies, as um, you know, this kind of diversification is taking place either to avoid or evade, I should say, export controls or restrictions on, um, you know, who you can buy products from and sell them to and so on. And that goes for both sides, really, because the United States and China are both doing this kind of thing. Um, so um, there are costs, of course, involved in recalibration of supply chains, but also beneficiaries. So those countries with smaller GDPs that actually are the beneficiaries of new investment or new production facilities, India is a case in point as well. Um, you know, they, they will show or experience quite significant benefits, which I think will not be lost on investors either. George, we've obviously also seen um, these trade trends impacting Chinese geopolitical opinions. Um, was it this spring we had a load of headlines around the BRICS club um, basically trying to form a new currency that should compete with the US dollar. Those were these sort of the early headlines ahead of those BRICS meetings. So given these trade trends where we trade less with China, what are the 
geopolitical plans uh, from, from the Chinese administration here in terms of securing trade partners around the world? Uh, well, I, I think just to, for the sake of um, purity, uh, shall we say, I, I think it'll be some time before we trade materially less with China because China is obviously, it's like a third of global manufacturing value added. So that role in the global trading system, you know, is is pretty secure for a little while. It'll take time, and I think it'll be over a, you know, an elongated period of time that these changes will take place. But having said that, um, I think, um, yes, I was, a, was quite amused, really, in a way, by some of the hype that accompanied, um, uh, you know, the meeting of the BRICS um, and the addition of new countries, including Argentina, um, I think Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia, Egypt, for example, UAE. Um, um, yeah, this is a kind of a governance uh, vehicle, I think, for China. Um, I mean, I have absolutely zero confidence that there's going to be a viable BRICS currency any time that we could look into the future. Um, and I think that um, the idea that this kind of disparate group of countries could ever have what we call kind of an optimal currency area, which would be the basis on which you would have a single currency. Or, I mean, they might want to use the yuan more intensively than it is for trading and invoicing purposes. And that may indeed happen um, to some degree if, um, for example, uh, oil trade or fossil fuel trade gets you know, repriced in yuan rather than in US dollars, or if, um, you know, China manages to kind of re-denominate a lot of its trade, as it has done with Russia, um, into its own currency. Um, having said that, I think one of the things that um, is also important to remember is that from a kind of global currency perspective, what really matters isn't the currency that you invoice somebody in or receive payment in, but how you accumulate your balances. So if you're running surpluses and somebody pays you, um, I mean, the Chinese obviously don't need any yuan because they can print as many as they like. But do the Saudis need uh, lots of Chinese currency when they peg their currency to the dollar? No, of course not. Um, do other countries like Brazil or even South Africa, do they want to have um, basically substitute you know, dollar liquidity for the limited, more limited liquidity you get in uh, RMB or yuan, I think that's very kind of doubtful. So I, um, I, I'm not really, I, I think there is a lot of hype about this. I think, you know, that as a governance tool or, or organization, I think BRICS really uh, fits into China's plans pretty well. Um, but I don't think it really has the kind of financial sector implications which many people were inclined to think it did. It leads me to discuss the ramifications uh, for global financial markets of these trends seen in uh, in China, George. And um, one thing that we get a lot of questions uh, around is the development in the Chinese yuan. Uh, you've already touched upon uh, the yuan's role in the global payment system and in the global financial infrastructure. Um, when the Chinese yuan was um, included in the special drawing rights from the IMF, it seemed like a step forward uh, for the Chinese in terms of including yuan more in global trade. So where do you see the path ahead for the Chinese yuan? Do you think it will prove to be a, a viable alternative to the US dollar from a reserve perspective as well? No, not really. Um, I mean, I think, 
I think the, the yuan could be a kind of, um, you know, an important second, part of an important second string, or maybe third string, because if the, if the US dollar is really at the top of the tree, and then the euro is the kind of next big, most important currency, then you've got a whole kind of raft of currencies underneath that, including the Japanese yen, um, Swiss franc, sterling, uh, South Korean won, Swedish krona, I mean, Australian dollar even. So the BIS, for example, has commented um, and pointed out quite um, uh, poignantly, really, that the shift in global currency reserves uh, or the composition of global currency reserves in recent times really has not been, you know, away from the US dollar into the yuan, but really away from the US dollar into other Western satellite currencies around the US dollar. And I think that's quite important. Why is that? Because many of these currencies offer uh, the liquidity, the instruments, uh, the governance system, the rule of law, the things that people really value in terms of being able to accumulate balances or hold reserves. Remember, China has capital controls, uh, outward capital controls, which and uh, and and is a mercantilist country that wants to run trade surpluses. If you do these two things or both of them, um, how are foreigners ever to really build up their claims on you? It just can't happen. Um, so unless people are prepared to contemplate the idea uh, w with validity that you know China is either going to start running trade deficits or that, I mean, in perpetuity, or that it will relax and abandon its outward movements, uh, outward controls on capital. I think this idea about um, diversification or challenge to the dollar is just like fairy tale, to be honest. In relation to uh, the discussion on capital controls and uh, the underlying capital flight that we've seen recently in China, we um, we get questions on the foreign direct investment numbers for the third quarter. I think they were released earlier this week. Mm -hmm. And for the first time in the time series history, as far as I remember, we actually had a negative print for the inwards foreign direct investment into China during the third quarter. So what do you make of that? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure for a couple of reasons. Well, one is I, I don't really know whether what the specifics of that quarter were that might be possible to extrapolate. Um, but I suspect that what we, well, I certainly don't suspect. I, I mean, I can see that the negative quarter actually followed about five quarters of progressive, steady decline quarter on quarter. So in a way, this was kind of very likely to happen. Um, whether it continues to be negative or just very low, I think, is a moot point. But it's a bit horses for courses, I think, Andreas, you know, because we keep hearing stories about the German car companies, for example, faced with a kind of a bit of a crisis in China about fight or flight. In other words, do they try to struggle back and regain market share in China? Or do they just quit and just, you know, decamp to other countries or back home? And the evidence that we have, such as it is so far, is that Companies like VW and Mercedes, for example, are going to dig their heels in and try and fight. And actually, that that means they have to put more money into China in order to um, to compete. But by the same token, there are other companies, um, many small and medium-sized enterprises, for example, plus a few big bigger companies, that are probably have reached the point where they think that the idiosyncrasies of doing business in China 
are just not worth the hassle anymore because of, you know, the campaign against CEOs and senior employees, the laws that have been passed on anti-espionage and cybersecurity, data transfer, um, and just it's just much more difficult and much more politically awkward to do business in China nowadays. Um, and that's all caused part of the whole kind of geopolitical problem and the repression um, that the, the party itself is imposing on the business sector in China. So um, it's, it's, uh, I guess it depends on what business you're in and, you know, what, uh, and the size of your company. Obviously, the bigger companies are much more likely to stay in China for longer and, you know, try to, to fight back. Uh, but I think the weakness of those numbers actually was quite revealing. It tells us that, that clearly something is afoot in terms of the appetite that foreign firms have for putting money to work in China. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Just this week, we also released the latest uh, set of Chinese inflation trends. And um, this month, again, we got the confirmation that we actually have deflation in China in sharp contrast to what we see across most Western economies. So that odd cocktail of deflation in China and inflation in the US and elsewhere around the West, what do you make of that cocktail also considering uh, trends in the foreign exchange space here? Well, I think, um, uh, yeah, we've had a couple of months when we've had sort of negative prints on the Chinese CPI. Um, I mean, obviously that, that uh, you know, that variable is very, very heavily influenced by food prices, in particular by pork prices. So it's not always easy to say with, you know, conviction, you know, China is in deflation. I mean, but what we do know by looking at not also not just the CPI, but also uh, wholesale prices, but the GDP deflator for what it's worth, plus what's happening to stock prices, for example, direction of movement of interest rates if you you know put all the kind of anecdotal and circumstantial evidence together you can see that china is flirting with deflation i don't think it's actually deflating in the way that we understood it um post financial crisis in the west or um in japan say you know 20 25 years ago um but it's definitely flirting with it and um and what that speaks to really is the the weakness of demand I mean, that's plain and simple. I mean, if, if demand was stronger in the Chinese economy, and if particularly consumer demand was stronger, we wouldn't probably be seeing these very, very low, worrisome prints on CPI and, and PPI. I'd like to bring in a question from uh, one of our uh, viewers uh, in relation to this discussion, because I find it to be a very timely debate, uh, given that we see inflation at least above target for the first time in, in ages in Japan. Um, so the viewer is asking for your opinion on the demographics in China and how demographics with an aging population impact the inflationary impulse of the economy. So given these uh, demographic trends that we discussed earlier in China, how would you expect sort of long-term trends in inflation to play out in China? Yeah. That's a good question, and and actually, you know, probably the, the the stock answer is probably the one that is it's too early to tell. Um, but it's very interesting because uh, traditionally, I mean, a lot of demographers really associated 
you know, the aging populations with, you know, stagnant economies and too many old people, not enough dynamism, not enough youth um, enthusiasm for spending money, et cetera, et cetera, and thought that they would be uh, places that deflation would, you know, take root. And certainly the Japanese experience um, post uh, the bust has been one of, you know, until relatively recently, as um, question has said, um, has been um, uh, one of deflation and uh, more or less, you know, stagnant demand. Um, but I think that um, this, I think my own view is really a little bit different from that. And I, there was quite an interesting book that came out last year or two years ago by Charles Goodhart and um, or Goodhart and Prashan, I think they uh, were the two authors, in which they they made a pretty convincing case, I thought, that aging societies actually would be places where inflation would be more likely. The reason being because of what happens to the labour supply curve and the fact that you keep on running into skill shortage, or you will run into labour shortages, skill shortages, which are normally, unless there are particular governance circumstances, they would normally start to push up wages and um, and that would uh, help to, well, not help, that would basically lift the cost structure of providing goods and services and therefore feed through into not necessarily high inflation, but more elevated inflation. And I think that's probably, I mean, we don't really know this yet. It's a bit, as I said, it is a bit early to tell, but I think that's the more likely outcome in my view. Um, so, um, you know, as ever, there are so many things which are influencing inflation in Europe, United States, all uh, other parts of the world at the moment. Um, never, very, never very easy to, to separate out and distinguish or, or, or isolate the demographics um, specifically. But um, I think that as a general rule, I think um, the uh, price of labor um, is going to go up as a consequence of uh, demographic change and sh the shrinkage in the labor force. Interesting, George. Um, speaking of inflation versus deflation, uh, China hosted the um, Central Financial Work Conference uh, roughly a week ago. Uh, and at least from the headlines uh, made from the conference, it, it sounded like systemic risks were sort of high on the agenda in China. So, so this conference held a week ago. What were the key takeaways and, and what are the focus areas in terms of systemic risk and financial risks here? Yeah, you, you have to be really nerdy like me uh, <laughs> to notice what happened there. But I think it was quite important, to be honest, because all of this was foreshadowed at the National People's Congress, which is the, the annual meeting of you know, China's parliament, uh, if you want a better word, um, in March. And um, they, they did foreshadow at that uh, meeting um, the, a new financial regulatory architecture, which has really now taken form. So what used to be the National uh, Financial Work Conference is now called the Central Financial Work Conference. First meeting happened um, uh, recently, as you pointed out. And um, what the uh, the readout from that meeting, well, uh, I think it went on for about two or three days, uh, is that um, the government is really con concerned about uh, financial risk Uh, financial stability and the inadequate or low level of provision of financial services. Um, so there are lots and lots of proposals uh, that were raised at this meeting, um, uh, and uh, some of them, well, 
you know, if you take out all the flowery language and all of that kind of stuff, um, obviously they, they want to do better at doing lots and lots of different things. But the bottom line really is that the party is in command, politics are in command, the party is in control. Um, and um, the uh, problems about surrounding local governments in China, um, which are linked obviously very closely to real estate, land, property prices, and so on, um, that's still a seriously unfinished business, which they need to address and get on top of. Um, but whether they have the wherewithal politically to be able to, you know, really hit the nail on the head, as they say, is remains to be seen. Really, I mean, there there are only really three options which they can take. One is to transfer many of the local government's liabilities to the central government's balance sheet, which Beijing really doesn't want to do. The second is to kind of orchestrate exit plans for local governments, which might involve selling off local services and local SOEs, state enterprises, to the private sector or uh, withholding or cutting back on the provision of public goods and services, which obviously is politically toxic. Um, and the third is to fudge it, you know, debt restructuring, longer maturities, lower interest rates, um, uh, extend and pretend. I think that's probably what will happen, but that's just kicking the can, right? Speaking of uh, the debt burden in the Chinese economy, uh, we've obviously had a lot of attention uh, given to the federal budget in the U.S. Uh, lately, given the large issuance pace uh, of the U.S. Treasury. But fill us in a little bit on the debt distribution in the Chinese economy, because it's not the federal government who holds sort of the large burden here, is it? No. Uh, so the the federal government's debt, uh, or the sorry, not federal, central government's yeah. debt. Is probably only about 20 to 20, I think that's the highest estimate I've seen is about 27 or 28 percent of GDP, um, but that's um, kind of completely dwarfed really by local and provincial governments, and that's really because the, the, the functions that local and provincial governments perform um, are very very considerable in terms of you know they're the ones that pay for education and health and uh, pen, uh, welfare and um, infrastructure, you know, they buy up land and so on and so forth. So um, given kind of the, also the debt, so-called hidden debt, as it's called, of uh, so-called local government finance vehicles plus other off-balance sheet liabilities, it, it's estimated really that, um, you know, local government debt all told is probably, mm, it's about sort of 65 to 75% of GDP. So the lion's share of the debt outside of the, gov the central government is actually is in local and provincial governments, but also most of the rest of the uh, debt burden in the economy is uh, among state enterprises. And coming up on the rails, as they say in horse racing, is, is consumer debt, household mortgage debt, um, uh, which has been growing very, very quickly. But it's been quite interesting to watch what's been happening in the last year or 18 months where... Um, I'm not really sure about the net numbers, but there have been quite a lot of reports about mortgagees paying off their mortgages because they don't really want to have that um, debt burden, uh, you know, like a millstone around their neck anymore. So um, if that becomes more of a pattern, um, that would be an interesting phenomenon for the sector. Indeed, George. And um one thing that we can <laughs> quite a few questions uh, on here is uh, the question of the 
real estate issues spilling over to other sectors in the Chinese economy. Uh, and um, a couple of questions also relate specifically to the fact that typically when we see troubles in the real estate sector, um, there's a tendency for these troubles to spill over to the banking system. So who holds the back in China now that we see troubles in real estate space? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of issues here. I mean, obviously, what we're all familiar with, because it's like in the financial press all the time, is the problems that developers have like um, Evergrande and you know, Country Garden and, and you know, maybe 40 or 50 other private sector developers that have missed payments on their obligations. So this is kind of quite a deep-rooted uh, problem. I think that the, um, the banks are not really, uh, I mean, obviously some banks are going to be um, exposed to the financial problems that the developers have. But my impression really is that the, the banks are not really uh, hugely at risk from the problems that the developers have had. Developers raised a lot of money in the shadow banking uh, sector, which has now been shrinking, and also from their own clients, right? Because they, the, the pre-sale model of housing transaction in China means that the developers were effectively borrowing money from households um, who, who, did, you know, who, who had to take out mortgages at the time, but who had to wait uh, for their properties to be built or completed, whilst the developers used that money to go and finance construction somewhere else. So they were effectively borrowing money, in effect, from, um, from households. Um, but the questioner is absolutely right. I mean, there is just no place on earth where the banking system is immune from real estate booms and busts. I mean, they all enjoy it on the way up, and they all suffer on the way down. And, you know, we've seen a number of small banks, regional banks, community banks closed down or merged or uh, rescued um, by local government authorities um, since 2018, 2019. Uh, um, and I think that um, this is something which I'm sure that the, the Central uh, Financial Commission, uh, which is the sort of supreme kind of political body uh, over the new financial regulatory architecture, will be very anxious about the connectivity and about maintaining uh, good order amongst the banks um, and, and watching for uh, problems that might crop up. It's also the case that property is the collateral um, for somewhere between about a third and two-fifths of all loan transactions. Um, so if prices drop um, or continue to drop uh, over time, then obviously that uh, affects the value of the collateral and that could have affect you know, the balance sheets of financial institutions too. So it's definitely something to watch. Um, I mean, it, it may not be as dramatic as we experienced it in 2007-8 because no major Chinese banks, in my judgment, are going to be allowed to go bust. So I don't think it manifests itself necessarily as a sort of a Lehman moment um, for China, but that doesn't mean to say it's costless at all. Not at all. Uh, George, we are a community of investors here at uh, Real Vision. So I'd like to conclude today's discussion um, with the very 
practical discussion on whether China is investable, given all of these troubles that we've discussed today, both with real estate developers suffering weak demographic trends ahead, slowing structural or trend growth in, in China. So what's your sort of structural fundamental take on China as an investment vehicle? Yeah, I mean, it's something that's um, been sort of quite common, kind of commonly discussed, certainly this year, a couple of investment banks have had kind of papers on this, haven't they? Um, I mean, from a technical point of view, I, I, I have to say, you know, it looks, or it seems to me like you can still do trades in China. And, you know, there's liquidity, you know, bid offer spreads are mostly pretty reasonable. Um, if you're interested in, or one is interested in kind of new opportunities, then, you know, there are a lot of firms and sectors which are pigeonholed under Xi Jinping's new productive forces of science and tech, you know, which presumably will be quite interesting for investors to, to be part of. And if you're, you know, selling luxury goods, Gucci handbags um, to the Chinese, the fabled middle class in China, you're on nobody's radar screen, really, because, you know, it's nowhere near national security, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the idea about, you know, China is uninvestable, I mean, technically speaking, I don't think that's right. The question is whether you should be building up your exposure to China, or if you want to, how you should do that is a different question. And I think the the economic outlook we've spoken about, you know, the governance um, situation we've spoken about, the clampdown on, you know, due diligence firms. I mean, if you want to buy or take a participation in a Chinese firm and you can't get information about its political relations, you can't get information about its ownership structure, you can't get information or you might be restricted in terms of data transfer or data sharing. I mean, these are things which are the kinds of things which must make investors much more wary about um, having or building exposure to China. Obviously, there are a lot of companies will still be very much engaged with China, and you don't have to buy you know, companies that are listed on the Shanghai or the Shenzhen exchange. You can buy in your own company, in your own country, um, uh, you know, and that exposure will, you know, it'll be good or it won't be depending on the company's performance. But I think the idea that, you know, people are going to build up their China exposure from whatever it is, five, six, seven percent to like 15, 16, 17 percent. I think personally, that's that's an old wives tale. That's just not going to happen, I don't think. George Magnus, the research associate at the China Center at Oxford University. Thank you very much for being with us here at Real Vision. Thanks for having me, Andres. And to those of you watching out there, thanks for the great questions. It's been a pleasure hosting this deep dive in global macro with a particular focus on the Chinese economy. It's safe to say that we have a lot of China watching ahead of us still here at Real Vision. So stay tuned. Thanks for watching. People are going to lose their minds. This is a moment in history unlike anything humanity's gone through. It's a very different world for humans to come. Take a step back and see the broad picture, which is the way all these technologies are interlinked. Because this is all about exponentiality and humans can't think in exponential terms. How consequential do you want to say machine intelligence is? It's almost certainly as consequential as writing. How long did writing take to disseminate through the human population? You know, hundreds, thousands of years. And we're dealing with it now on a scale of months. But in this kind of world, you're compounding 100% growth 
every year and the numbers become astronomical. AI is going to spot patterns in the world that were just completely invisible to us. Even if you think that the AI and the robots are your demise, you might as well bloody invest in them and make some money out of it. If not, you're just going to be angry man shaking your fists at the clouds.